outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 128. Today in the show, we're bringing together four hunters who successfully killed a buck this year during the rut. And we're examining exactly how those hunts went down, what made them successful, and what we can learn from them. All right, well, before we get into the meat of this episode, we need to pause briefly to thank our partners at Sitka Gear who make this podcast possible. And today, we've got a Sitka story that speaks to some of the deepest moral and ethical questions that we might face as hunters. Now, Aaron Hitchens has worked on many of Sitka Gear's films as a member of the team at Rock House Motion. And this past week, he joined his buddies down in Kansas for a much-anticipated whitetail hunt. Given that he's usually filming, he hasn't gotten a whole lot of time down there to just hunt, but this year was going to be different. He was going to have the full week to chase a Kansas giant. But that all changed, as darkness faded on the very first morning, and he spotted an old rundown buck lying on the ground, obviously about to die, just 30 yards from his stand. I didn't want to shoot something that had a chance of surviving that I didn't have a really sporting opportunity with, you know, like I didn't want to walk up to a deer that was having a bad day and kill it because it was too tired to run away, you know? Um, So as it stood up, I could tell it was obviously super exhausted, but I was doing whatever I could to assess its condition. And it had cuts on its face and basically it just looked like it had run itself ragged in the rut. It was clearly an extremely old deer, you know, eight to 10 kind of range, like very, very, very old, smaller in size, um, and in body size and kind of started to regress in body size. And, and it was, it, it kind of became clear that this thing was, I don't know if it's dying of old age or dying of exhaustion, but, uh, eventually it became clear that it was dying and that it was in quite a bit of discomfort. And so I, uh, decided to burn my tag and, and kill the deer. And it was tough, man. It was just tough on every level. Like it, it was tough primarily just sort of seeing death 
in its natural form and realizing just how miserable this would be for the deer. You know, because you always think about hunting as it's like, oh, if you don't kill stuff, it lives, but it doesn't, you know, it lives for a while and then it dies. And when it dies, based on what I saw the other day, and I think what people would consider a relatively peaceful death for an animal, you know, it is, it is not this sort of natural, peaceful thing that people imagine. I mean, it was very, very uncomfortable for the animal. Um, it was very uncomfortable for me to watch. I basically realized that this thing was just going to continue to be exhausted until, you know, my expectation was based on the amount of predator traffic in the area that it would probably just end up getting eaten alive. And it, it really positioned what we do as hunters differently in my mind uh, throughout the sort of the journey as, as not necessarily bringing death to something that would otherwise be life, but bringing even in the case of an, a non-ideal shot, bringing a more, uh, a, certainly a swifter death to something that, you know, was, was awaiting something much more uh, catastrophic as would happen naturally. So I felt a lot of things. I, I, none of them were positive, but at the end of the day, I figured that the, you know, I, it was clearly an old deer. It was clearly a warrior, you know, when I walked up to that deer and grunted, it stood up basically to fight its last fight. And there's, there's almost just a sense of, of honor around the animal. And I figured that the, you know, the best, the most dignity I could offer was a, a clean, swift kill. And that's what I did. A tough situation and one that I'm sure will stick with Aaron for a very long time. But in the end, sometimes our responsibilities, hunters goes above and beyond our own personal goals. That said, this was a Sitka story. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka gear, which Aaron was wearing during this experience, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, on to the show. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are bringing together four very serious deer hunters, all with one thing in common. We have all <laughs> killed how are you laughing already, Dan? <laughs> well, you, you're building. I'm sorry for interrupting already, but you built this up like we're some panel of the greatest minds ever. Oh. And I'm I'm not here to speak for the other guys on the on the on the panel, but I'm like way below how you just introduced me. Well, no, I was gonna say uh, what I meant to say is we have three very serious deer hunters and one schmuck. But you you busted into Bingo. my monologue. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll be quiet. Yeah, please. Mind your place, Dan. <laughs> Co-host. So what I'm trying to say is our plan today is to dive into each of the successful hunts that these four people had. Trying to understand exactly why we were successful, what we did right, and what we've learned from these hunts. So as... We've alluded, one of these hunters is my co-host and schmuck, Dan. One of these hunters is myself. I somehow was able to have a successful hunt during the rut. And also joining us are my two very good buddies and serious big buck killers in their own right, Corey Fall and Ross Houseman. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. How's it going, Mark? Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Dan? We're good. We're good. This is going to be fun. It's going to be a little messy 
you know, since there's four of us all on here, and I wish we were actually in person, sitting around, like, drinking a beer, talking right now, but uh, we're not. We're all sitting in our own separate houses, maybe drinking beer by ourselves, but um, we'll, we're going we're gonna to have a good time talking because, well, you guys, the three of you guys are three of my very best deer hunting buddies that I enjoy talking deer with, so... This is this is gonna be a good time, and Dan, I gotta ask you to kick things off here before we get into anything too serious. Yeah, how does it feel being on the sidelines during the rut? You know, it feels good because I don't have to wake up early, take like four showers a day, none of that <laughs> stuff. Right. But it sucks because I'm, you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll talk to a buddy. He's like, "Man, I saw some." tons of chasing this morning i saw you know this buck fight i saw bucks raking the trees i heard a buck snort weed so all those things that get us excited i'm not in the stand doing anymore so for like the first time in years right right like i like i was telling a buddy the other day i've in the past 10 hunting seasons this is only the fourth buck that i've ever shot and probably the earliest buck i've ever shot so being I'm used to grinding it out. Like I, like I told you on the last podcast, I was prepared for a long rut that was going to end actually, uh, which would have been to see the 16th. We're recording this on the 16th. That was the last day of my scheduled hunts, but I tagged out, you know, 14 days ago. And, uh, now I'm just, you know, living vicariously through Instagram. Yeah. So what have you been doing for these past 14 days? Changing diapers, washing dishes, yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yep. Actually, a lot of that uh, making the wife, <laughs> making the wife happy that I'm, you know, that I'm back planning to uh, take some time off uh, late season. Now, I, basically, you called me out and uh, I, did, I feel yeah. like I, uh, shotgun season in Iowa gets over on December 18th. So I can start hunting again with a muzzle loader tag, which is a primitive weapons tag. So I can use my bow so I can get out there and maybe try to make something happen late season. Nice. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that me calling you out had an impact. I uh, I knew I had. If I appealed to your pride, it would get you out hunting. <laughs> yep. Yep. I can't. I can't have Mark Kenyon like oust me. No. No. <laughs> That's embarrassing for all parties. <laughs> right. So right. okay. So let's let's speaking of Iowa, Ross. You're an Iowa guy. We talked to you last year about shed hunting, but we've not talked to you about deer hunting can you give us just like a super short cliff notes on your history as a deer hunter is this something you've been doing your whole life et cetera, et cetera? yeah i think i i probably started when i was i think 13 uh with my dad you know we went up to i'm from wisconsin originally and so everybody used to go up to northern wisconsin or to the Northwoods, right for for gun season so when i was 13 that's kind of when i started um and i shot my first buck like a little forky that first year and I was just hooked and I remember when I was like a little kid I always always wanted to go hunting I always had a drive for it um and ever since shooting that that first buck I was just totally hooked on deer hunting so then it just kind of snowballed got a bow started bow hunting went a lot of seasons without shooting anything but just started learning a lot um just you know as a kid hunting public land going after school every day all that kind of stuff uh, as I got older then, I um, started hunting more seriously for, like, bigger bucks, obviously. Um, and then the reason I ended up moving to Iowa is obviously because I really loved deer hunting, and I knew my opportunities would be a lot better. So 
so long story short, I ended up in Iowa mm, quite a few years ago now, and uh, haven't looked back since. So it's been it was a, a a great decision. So glad that I'm down here because I get to live my passion where there are some giant white tails and a lot of them. So. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then what you do is you make me and Corey feel miserable because you text us pictures of all the big yeah. deer you shoot or see. Yeah, yeah, uh, no doubt. I do. You know, it's not. I don't do that to be like, hey, look at what I can. I do that to actually make you guys upset. I really do. <laughs> yeah. I might be sad, but... <laughs> I'm Trust like, me. I can't wait to send this to these guys. They're gonna be so mad in Michigan. Corey and I really, <laughs> we know you're that big of a jerk. <laughs> and isn't that true, Corey? Uh, I know. But... <laughs> Yeah, he does. He just rubs it in. He just loves to send those pictures just to get us all uh, drooling over here when we can't we can't be in Iowa. Oh my gosh! Well, last night me and Corey were at a buck pole here in Michigan, and there was a there was a serious big buck. I mean, it was a it was a buck that even you guys in Iowa would be impressed with. I would, you know, you should be impressed with what what what, what did we get Andy or Corey? What was the uh, the regulation you pulled on him? I think we came up with like one ninety two. Um, that was you know we might have been you know, giving him a half inch here or there. We even, even going super conservative. I think he was high one eighties gross. He was a, he was an absolute stud. Yeah. 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 Big so year. so yeah. we text, we text this to all like my hunting buddies here. We're on this little group text message and Ross just responds, boring. <laughs> <laughs> and we just I cursed know, you off. I just dropped my deer off at the locker and there was like a 190 something in there. So it's kind of like, <laughs> and Peter and I always joke about that. My buddy Peter, <laughs> we always do that all the time. So that's funny. That's I was just joking though, guys. That was a nice buck. You know that. <laughs> so, so I never see deer that big either. So. Yeah, true story. So, so Corey, what about you? Give us your little background real quick here. Um, well, born and raised in Michigan and, um, I actually, uh, fortunate enough to live, uh, about 15 miles from the legend Mark Kenyon himself. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you have that on your resume? I, uh, what's, what's that? You have that on your resume? <laughs> no, it's not on my resume. It's not on my <laughs> resume. It on um, but yeah, <laughs> born and raised, uh, Southern part of the state here. Uh, I've been hunting since I was, uh, I guess 12 years old. So now I'm on my about 20th year, I guess it is. And I've uh, been fortunate enough to to take several nice deer here at home. And I also lived in Iowa um, when I was going to school. That's where I met Ross. Um, lived out there for about four years, and uh, I took a few nice deer out there with my boat too. So um, now I'm back home, and I guess uh, dreaming that I was still in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Me, me and me and Corey get coffee. Um... Not every Thursday, but as many Thursdays as we can pull off, we get coffee and breakfast. And usually, every one of those conversations while we're eating breakfast is about how Corey wishes he was in Iowa. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you and me both. Some, though. Someday, Corey. Oh yeah. yeah, someday. Yeah. So, last week on the podcast, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I can't remember. Um, but I asked Dan for one word to describe how he feels about the rut. So I got to thinking, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. So real quick off the top of your head, Ross, one word to describe how you feel about the rut or what you, what describes the rut. Well, one, one, so if I think about the rut, what do I, what do I think or what do I feel? One word, one word to describe uh, it. <laughs> I hate to say it cause I'd say stressful <laughs> just because that's just my personality. I hate to say it, but I get so stressed out. But, 
that's what comes to mind. It gets stressed out when the rut comes, but it's it's exciting. It's like a exciting, stressful kind of thing because you're always just always thinking about where you should sit, what the wind's going to be, what the weather's like, and there's just so much info that gets processed that just kind of stresses me out. So. Mm-hmm. And you guys know that, so <laughs> I don't know. That's what I that's what I come up with. Yeah, that sounds very accurate. That's about what I would have guessed for you, Ross. <laughs> what about you, yeah, Doc? Yeah, I know. I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on it. That's good, Corey. I was I was just gonna say yeah. I was just gonna say that tough. Um, I mean, as you guys all know, it's it's a grind, and um, I think a lot of guys, you know, even though the rut is only you know typically a, a solid you know week to ten days. That's a lot of time, and, and if you're as diligent as Mark Kenyon and you sit in the stand for you know 14 hours a day, that's a lot of hours. That's a lot of hours in the stand, so it can be tough. And um, I guess though, maybe maybe one word is um, um, I don't know if it's really one word, but like it can change in a second. So unpredictable is probably the word I would use um, because it you know you can be sitting there one minute and you've been you know seeing zero deer all day, and the next second there's two huge bucks fighting in front of you and deer running everywhere. So it can change in, 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 a, in a second. So yeah. unpredictable. Yeah, that's so true. That's like, yeah. I would take what you say, Ross, like the way I look at the rut or the way I feel about the rut usually is part one is what Ross said. Like it is the ultimate stressor for me. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about all the things I need to be doing and it's physically growing and it's mentally difficult at times and all that kind of stuff. But the only thing that keeps me going is I keep reminding myself of what you just said, Corey. It's like it can just change in a second. And this, this past week when I was in Ohio and really before that in Michigan, you know, things weren't going quite the way I wanted them to. And then in Ohio, they really weren't going the way I wanted them to. And I just had to, like literally, I would say it. I was just sitting there in the tree stand just saying it can change any second. Just keep it together. Any second it could change. Even though I'd see a forky all day and then I'd see a doe the whole next day, you know, I just kept saying it can change. And, um, and sometimes it does. So, so I guess, Dan, can I throw it to you? Can, can you be the lead host for a second here? Because, because I, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about, um, the first successful rut hunt. Um, if you, if you don't, maybe I'm stealing the show here. Can I tell my story, Dan, I guess? Uh, guys, what do you think? Should we let Mark tell a story <laughs> or should we just like ignore him and have our own conversation? <laughs> no, Mark, you, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell, tell us what happened in Ohio? Okay. So, so, so I'll tell you guys what, what happened in Ohio and then you guys feel free to grill me on the specifics and anything like that. Cause hopefully there's something, you know, we can learn from each one of our stories. Um, so I kind of alluded a little bit to what happened, but you know, since we last talked, Dan, um, you know, on the last podcast, I think we were talking about me throwing a Hail Mary in Michigan and doing the four hour rattling, you know, hunt on the edge of Holyfield's bedding area. <laughs> Tell me how you were successful. Yeah. So, so that didn't quite work out. Um, but I did hunt that stand, you know, when the wind, I knew the wind wasn't right. Um, but I hunted there anyways, with the thought process being either I get lucky and I get a shot at him because this is like my best closest stand I can be to where he's at or I blow out a bunch of deer but maybe I get this deer to be a little bit smarter so he doesn't get killed in the next two weeks when all these guys are out here with their guns so I did that and I am excited to tell you that it apparently worked to some degree because opening day of gun season was yesterday in Michigan and Holyfield did not get killed he has not been killed since I left I saw him today at noon he is alive. Oh, wow. 
Yes. Were you That's shitting awesome. all day today? No, I actually didn't hunt today. I just happened to be in the area, and there he was out in the middle of a tall kind of CRP-ish field all by himself, just staring around, looking all around him on my property. Um, and there he was. So uh, I happened to have my camera, and so I just filmed him for a little bit, and then he walked off into this bedding area right in the edge of my food plot system that I've you know, been wanting to kill him. I thought that would be the spot I could do it, and uh, now he's finally in there. So... That Are you going tomorrow morning? No, no. Um, I do you, do you want to kill him? I do. <laughs> I do. We've talked. <laughs> we've talked about my gun season sanctuary idea. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So I don't push in there right now because I just want. I just don't want to blow him out to the either side of me where there's like just so many hunters. Um, and interesting side note that uh, you don't know this, Dan, um, but Corey knows and Ross, I think, knows. Um, but the night before opening day of gun season, um, I happened to be in the area and I saw flashlights back on this hunting property I have. And so I was freaking out and I went and got my four wheeler, drove out there, ended up confronting these people that were walking on my neighbors and on this property I can hunt. And, um, I'm like, what are you guys doing back here? Long story short, this guy had shot that buck Frazier that I had passed a few different times. Oh boy. And he was out tracking. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, they would have, Hmm. Did did they get him? I Uh, mean, did they find the buck? They did not find the buck. Um, which is a bummer. I think they, they videoed it and it looks like it was a shoulder blade shot. I think. Um, so hopefully, hopefully he survives. Um, but, that was kind of a bummer because a the shot a buck that I was hoping would get to be a year older, which nothing wrong with that. The guy, I mean, awesome for that guy. Um, you know, nothing wrong with shooting a deer that makes you happy. Um, but also we ended up where they were tracking that deer was in Holyfield's like core area. So I was like, well, he'll definitely know there's hunters around now. So <laughs> that, uh, that said now Holyfield was right, uh, right in the smack dab middle of my stuff today. So I'm hoping he'll, uh, hoping he'll stick around there. And the thing is, I don't even have a gun I can take out right now. Um, even if I want to go, I did think about, I was like, shoot, could I go back and like get my stuff and sneak out here? But I don't even have a gun I can use down here. Um, because my muzzle loader is all messed up and I haven't bought a new one yet and I can't use a rifle down here. So I, I could like grab my bow and try to do a spot and stock on him, but, uh, that doesn't seem too terribly high odds. So, but I digress. I'm not talking about Holyfield anymore. I'm supposed to be talking about Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. So I left after trying to kill Holyfield, couldn't get it done, went to Ohio with high hopes. Um, you know, lots of nice bucks down there, of course. And I hunted for four days with pretty much nothing exciting going on. I mean, like like Corey said, I was hunting the entire day um, from dawn till dusk, and it was just dead. Um, and you've heard me talk about this property in the past. Like, it's traditionally kind of dead a lot of the time so like i knew that going into it i knew there's gonna be a lot of slow days but it just seemed like worse than even i expected um i did see what was probably a three-year-old on the first day um off in the distance really briefly and that was cool to see that but then after that it was like nothing and i was in the very best stand probably on that property and then the next day was another great stand and didn't hardly see anything and it just kind of kept racking up day two three four and um and what Corey, you got down there the day after I did, and then, well, 
right? How long did you stay? Two days, three days? Yeah, I was there Thursday, and I left Saturday, kind of midday. Yeah, so so you left, and I was, and then Josh was there. My buddy Josh was with me, and then he had to leave Sunday. And so Corey was gone, and Josh was gone, and I'm sitting there, and now I'm all by myself down there, and I haven't seen anything worth, you know, I mean, nothing bigger than the Forky since the first day or second day, I think. And so finally, you know, after hunting all my great rut stands, I was a you know, full day in this really good bottom stand that we talked about on one of the rut podcasts, Dan. Um, another two full days on this ridge that traditionally funnels deer. A third day I went and hunted this big new bedding area stand that we've never hunted before over on this opposite ridge um, and just nothing. So day five and I was like, screw it. I'm just going to do something different. I went and moved at midday to this little corner stand we have on the very corner of the property where I can see my open field and I can see the neighbor's open field where usually there's a lot of does. And my whole thought process is, well, I can see a large area and I put a decoy out in front of me. And I thought, all right, if I can get lucky and happen to see a nice buck finally, maybe I can call to him and bring him in here. Because right now it certainly doesn't seem to be happening in the core of our property, so maybe there's something happening on the periphery. Um, and long story short, set up that decoy just like uh, I always have in the past, but no nice buck has ever seen. Um, and a couple hours into it, I started seeing some does coming out, which was nice because I hadn't hardly been seeing any does at all beforehand. And then, I don't know, maybe an hour, 45 minutes before dark, I see a flash a couple hundred yards to my, I don't know, it'd be southeast. And I pull up my binos and I just saw a wall of tines, what looked like a wall of just tall white tines. And instantly, like, I was like, shooter. And I swear to God, Dan, I didn't even look at him again with my binos or even thinking about it. It was just like, big buck. And then it was just like game on. So I just remember like I pulling through my pockets, trying to find my grunt tube because he's following a doe about 200 yards away, heading into the neighbors, about to cross the line. So I get my grunt tube out, and I let out a big, rawr. he keeps going. I let out a snort wheeze, he keeps going, and I just let out one just heavy, heavy roar, just as loud as I can make it, just anything to get this deer's attention. And that stopped him in his tracks. And he turned and he looked right at me, and you could see him, his ears perk up when he saw that decoy. And then it was literally like I was watching a TV show. He just turned, ears perked up, you saw him bristle, and then he just started running right at that decoy. And I was like, holy crap, this is actually happening. Um, it was really sweet. I couldn't believe it, but I had all these things I had to do. Like, I remember, I, I didn't even, like, think about, okay, do I want to shoot him or not? Is this anything? It was just like, okay, I'm shooting this buck. Now I need to do step one, which was slowly turn, grab my bow. Step two was slowly turn back, make sure he hasn't seen you. Step three was make sure your rangefinder's handy. Step four was make sure your camera's on, position it to try to be on the decoy. Can you get the deer in the shot right now? And before I knew it, he was at 40 yards coming in behind this tree branch. He was at 35 yards. He was at 30 yards. But he's this whole time behind this one branch that was out in the middle of this field kind of. And um, I drew back just before he got past that branch and I'd be able to shoot, and then he froze. So I was stuck, I was stuck at full draw, and it, feel, it felt like a really long time, but now watching the video, it wasn't as long as I thought. But it felt like I felt like I was starting to shake, so maybe I just need to lift more weights or something because he, he finally took a step out, and as soon as he took the step out, I touched it off, and I pulled the shot a little bit to the left. Um, but I was, I don't, I don't know. You, know, you know how it is in that moment. I knew... I had to get that shot off as soon as I could because you've seen, you've probably seen video where you, those bucks 
they they posture. You know, he was doing that thing. He was all puffed up, and he was kind of curved and then slowly sidewalking over towards the decoy. And I knew at any second he's going to charge and hit that thing. And as soon as he hit that thing, he realized, okay, that's not normal, and he'd run off. So I was like, I need to get this shot as soon as he steps out from behind those branches. So as soon as he did, I let her go. Um, but wasn't a perfect shot. He bounded off like 50 yards, stopped, was hunched up, and then slowly walked away. So I knew that I had gotten something into his paunch. And um, after looking at the footage, looked like it entered maybe around the liver, exited back towards the guts because very slightly quartering to me. And um, I let him sit overnight. And then the next morning I went out there, and I found him like 100, 150 yards away. He didn't go very far. He bedded down, and that was that was all she wrote. So, so did you hit? I know you you sent me some pictures and whatnot, but do do you feel that you ended up hitting maybe back lower lung, or do you think it was even further back than that? Did you hit diaphragm, liver, what? I think yeah, I think it was it wasn't lung. Um, that picture that I sent you when he's like hunched up like that, I think it, it looked yeah. a lot more forward than what the okay. shot really did. Because when you watch the video of it, it looks, you can see it enter pretty far back. Um, I mean, it entered a good six, six, seven inches farther back than probably where I wanted it. Um, so, so I think clipped liver and then went out the back, um, you know, towards that front right. part of the guts. So not my best shot ever, but it, uh, it worked out okay. So now, that was my rut. So after you shot this buck, I know we had exchanged some text messages and had some side conversations, but was this buck what you thought he was after you walked up on him? So I hate those guys who are always yep. like, oh, you know, ground shrinkage. I thought it was a lot bigger or I thought it was a different deer or whatever, whatever. Um, so I, I won't, mm-hmm. I don't want to be like that, but I, I was just excited and I didn't even think about it. Um, you know, like when I was in Michigan yeah. and I was seeing these deer that I was passing, like right. when I saw a nice buck, I was pulling out my binos and examining them and like, okay, you know, I really want to shoot Holyfield, but is this a four or five year old buck? You know, really trying to look at their bodies. Obviously not. Okay. Not going to shoot them. Um, in this instance, I just, I didn't even think about it. Um, right. So, so no, I, I you know, the instant, the first thing I thought when I saw this deer coming across that field way out there, I just saw his side and I saw, you know, those two, three tall tines. And, um, I was like, wow, this is, this is a shooter. It just instantly looked like a really nice big buck. And I just right. didn't even, didn't even think about it after that. Um, so he is younger than, you know, what I had originally wanted to kill in Ohio. You know, my goal was at least a four right. and a half year old. I don't think this buck wasn't four. He was three and a half. Um, so, yes, not exactly what I had gone into the season going for, but at the same time, he got my heart pumping. This was right. a really cool hunt, the first successful hunt I've ever had over a decoy, um, and still a really nice deer. So I'm I'm very happy with it. Um, I'd say the only the only downside is just that, you know, in the moment, I'm like, oh, thank goodness, you know, the hunt's done. Yeah. I was able to fill my tag, you know. I was, you know, getting down on myself until that point. But now I was like, oh, man, it would have been nice to keep hunting down there, go back yeah. later in the year. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of my thoughts on all that. Gotcha. Yeah, dude, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus, but I, it's just like I I would have been in the same exact situation as you, but, but I missed. 
You know what I mean? Right. So it's not like there, there are definitely times when the energy and the blood is pumping and a little bit of that thought process goes out the window, but that's why we all do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was, I, I don't regret it at all because that right. was an awesome hunt and it made me really happy and I've got some incredible meat, you know, and in, in the long run, that's the very most important thing. I've got some great meat to feed myself and my wife with and an awesome, an awesome memory. So it was cool. And it was, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, it was just like another really great reminder for me. Like, gosh, every, every, I feel like every year during the rut, I tend to, you know, fall into that trap of like, you know, after five, six, seven days go by or whatever, sometimes longer and things aren't going my way. I'm like, oh, it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen. You start feeling down. Um, But I just keep on trying to keep myself positive and tell myself that over and over and, and, I've been lucky enough these past few years that I've I've been rewarded for sticking it out. That's not always going to happen, but I was right. fortunate that it did this year. And like Corey Fall says, it's unpredictable. Yes. That's right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um so I don't know. Um that was how my hunt. Any do you got anything about what I did? You guys are curious about I mean kind of the basic gist of why I think it was successful was that a, I kept, you know, I was thinking about leaving. I was getting kind of down and out about it, but I didn't. I stuck it out. So I think that was one thing that led to success. I think number two, I put myself in a place where I could see a large area um, because I knew if I could see one, I have a chance of calling one. And then number three, I used that decoy, um, which for the first time, you know, that I've had an opportunity, it actually worked out really well. Um And I guess the only other thing I would point out is if you have not listened to our episode with John Dudley that was from earlier this fall, be sure to listen to that because he walks through exactly how to set up a decoy. And I followed his instructions exactly, and it worked out perfect. I had that decoy set up so that the wind was blowing from the decoy to me, and then I angled the decoy slightly towards me so it looked like he was kind of looking over to my left. And then I only used one antler on him so he doesn't look like he's too dominant of a buck. And what happens is when a buck, what's supposed to happen at least, and what did happen in this case is that when a buck sees this deer, he's going to want to come downwind of it because he wants to smell it, and then he also wants to approach that deer head on. So when it happens, it gives you a good broadside shot when he comes around that corner. So I think for me, those are the four things I took away from it is like, okay, these four things went well, and I think that's or these are four things I did that led to this success. Um, but I don't know. Anything else that I should cover on that front, Dan, or, or any of you guys? No, I think you uh, explained it uh, explained it pretty good. I think that all three of us can uh, agree that you need to go kill Holyfield now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. He's uh, he's haunting me now. I just need to figure out. Okay, here's a question. This is what I'm torn between right now. Um, and I want to get to you guys' other stories, but, um, so, so yes, I usually do leave this property alone during gun season, um, as a sanctuary to try help, you know, hopefully some of these bucks can make it to another year. And if there's a specific buck I'm after, I think I've got a better chance of killing them in the late season rather than trying now and pushing them to get shot by a neighbor. Um, but, but I am torn. Do I go out now or during the late season with my muzzleloader? and have a better chance of killing them? Or do I stick to my, you know, bow hunting quest and only use my bow? I, 
I'm kind of torn on that because on one side I want to kill him. On one side I'm like, man, killing with a bow would be like the purest way to do it. I don't know. Dan, what do you think? Dude, I'm telling you, I don't care really how you do it, but this is this is a risk versus reward sport. So you need to – you saw this buck on your property today at noon. He's there. Who knows how long he's going to be there if a hot doe drags him to a neighboring property and gets shot regardless. You need to be out there hunting him, and you need to – I mean – you can't you can't control where he's going to go. Even if there's even if there's low pressure on your property, yes, he may stick around. But at any moment, a hot doe could come through and make him hop the fence, and your neighbor shoots him anyway. So I'd I say while he's there, you got to make a move on him. Yeah, you make you make some fair points. What about you guys, Corey? What do you think Mark should do? Yeah, that's a tough. That's a tough question. Um, I guess the the first question you have to answer is is, I mean, is your desire to kill the deer, you know, strong enough that it doesn't matter which weapon you use, or do you really feel that you got to kill him with your bow? Because I agree with Dan. If if you just want to take that animal right now, is the time to do it because he's there, obviously. Um, but if you are dead set because you started hunting him with the bow, that's the way you want to do it. You know, I like your shotgun sanctuary idea. Um, I think you have enough cover right there in that general area, and obviously there's food there that if you stay out of there, you've got a, you know, probably 75% chance, pretty solid chance that he stays. But like Dan said, you know, any time a hot doe could come through there or something random could happen, you know, the neighbor's dog runs through there barking or something like that happens that you don't expect, he takes off and the neighbor guy does happen to kill him and you see his picture on Facebook tomorrow and you're thinking, geez, I should have been out there. So yeah, that's a tough, that's really tough. Ross. Yeah. I don't know. That buck is a, he's a wanderer too. Like he's got the, he's got the personality to be a buck to kill, you know, like, so I don't know. I just think he, he moves around a lot for being four years old. There's no doubt about that. Well, uh, for, especially for how much you've seen him. So I don't know, like, especially, I don't know. I, it's up to whether you want to shoot him with a gun or a bow, I think. I mean, if you want to shoot him with a bow, just do what you're doing. And But if you want to want to kill him, then I don't think there's any better time than now. I will say, though. I don't know. I just, he's he's very daylight active, right? We've by, by, by far, he's the most daylight active ever, buck I've ever seen. All of it, yeah. at least all of it that I've observed or gotten on trail camera, it's all in like a 200-yard square area. I mean, it's in a very small area. So it's like he has this little tiny area where he's like very comfortable. But like I've never seen him or gotten daylight pictures of him anywhere outside of that. Um, so I don't know. I, he's kind of figured out that there's this little sweet spot he can be that, you know, he's not going to get killed. And I am just keep on hoping that, you know, if I don't screw that up, one of these times I'll be able to edge yeah. in there and get a shot. But well, if you get, and I take them in there, then you should be able to get them. Yeah, I don't know. Eventually. Yeah, I think the, I think the positive thing on that farm you hunt, um, you know, is that you have a large volume of does there. So typically, I think when there's a mature buck, um, at least what I've seen um, in an area with a lot of does, there's not a ton of competition for those does. I mean, there's other bucks there, but there's plenty of does kind of to go around. So the chances of him, you know, going too far astray from that little, 
you know, 15, 20 acres on the neighbors and then on your piece, um, I don't think he's going to take off and go too far during shotgun with the pressure around there. So I think you do have a good chance of him making it and having a chance with your bow. Um, but like Dan said, you know, if you want to kill the deer, you know, the next couple of days while he's on your place is probably the best time. Um, so, yeah. I know there's a, there's bucks down here and some of the places that I hunt and, and they don't show up until right before or during shotgun and they, they know where it's safe. And I mean, if you see, if you're seeing was that noon today, yeah. I mean, he, he knows where all the activity's at and he know he's been through the gun season in Michigan before. So I don't, I don't think he'll go anywhere. I wouldn't worry about it too much. I mean, I running the cameras down here, even it's crazy how many giant bucks show up, um, into these like little sanctuaries and they hang out there for that whole gun season, give it a little time and then they're gone again. And they, they just, I mean, I swear they even show up like a day or two before, you know, and guys start wandering around right before season. They just know when that's happening. And I'm sure Holyfield knows it too. So I'm sure that's why you saw him just standing up in daylight noon today. Mm-hmm. And he was in the middle. He just knows it's happening. Yeah, and he was in the middle of a, t- of a CRP field, like where there's no trees or anything around for at least 100 yards on any side of him, just where, you know, no hunter was going to be, you know? This is an area that's... I bet, hmm? I bet you he's with a hot doe right now in that CRP. She was bedded down. <laughs> you know, there there's wasn't. Chance, yeah. There wasn't when I saw, but there certainly could be now or could have been earlier. Was it, was it tall enough to where you could see, like, his feet? And you know, if if he if there was a doe bedded within ten yards of him, would you well, have been able to see her? No, I wouldn't have been able to see her. The only reason why I think he wasn't with a doe is because I watched him walk away and walk into oh, okay. into timbered cover. I got gotcha. you. Know, you know, earlier before the season, Dan, I talked about like these two little bedding areas that I think he uses the most: bedding area, the front bedding area, and back bedding area. Um, right. Well, he was in the CRP field, which was in in front of the front bedding area, so even closer okay. to the road. And then he walked from that into that front bedding at this little patch of brambles and little trees and junk like that. Um, so I don't know, but uh, we'll see. I need to go buy a muzzleloader, I guess, if I'm going to go <laughs> go try to do that. <laughs> so enough about enough about my story with Holyfield because I feel like everyone has heard me talk about him so many times. All the comments I get now are just just kill that deer already. So, <laughs> so Corey. You were the, well, you killed before, you killed after Dan, but before me and Ross. Uh-huh. So yep. tell me about your hunt because two days beforehand, you texted me, or maybe you were t- telling me on the phone, and you said, All right, tomorrow morning, I'm killing this buck at 9.30 a.m. You told me that. Now, you didn't do it. You didn't pull it off at 9.30 a.m. that next day, but the following day, you did. How'd you do it? Um, well, I guess probably, uh, but I guess I'll start from the beginning. Uh, the property I'm hunting is, uh, about 70 acres of, you know, marsh, CRP, uh, sporadic kind of cedars. And then on the far east side, there's, um, a big oak flat that's kind of a big ridge or a big hill. Uh, the neighbors own a majority of it. And then the property that I have, um, you know, um, rights to hunt it only has maybe two acres of that big hillside. But anyways, that's kind of the general picture of what the place looks like. I did put about a half an acre food plot in this year of oats and brassicas, the white tail institute mix, which has helped keep a lot of deer in there. 
But anyways, I got pictures of this buck about the first week of October. I think it was right around like the 4th or 5th, something like that of October. I got pictures of him um, at night, and I only had, you know, a handful of pictures. I knew he was there, but I just wasn't getting anything during the day. And then I think it was like the 22nd or 3rd of October, I, I pulled the card, and he was there in daylight, like two minutes after daylight, um, you know, and he was headed headed back into this thick stuff. And so I assumed, based on the fact that it was right at daylight, that he was probably bedded in there. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of do follow that moon guide a little bit. And I was looking at November, you know, 5th and 6th being, um, you know, red moon days. And I just, um, I figured that my best chance of killing him with the only daylight pictures I had of that deer were, you know, um, first thing in the morning. And with those being good movement days, I figured um, if I could get close enough to where he was bedded that I may have a shot at him. So I slipped in there, and it was a stand that I hung last year, and I have not sat it at all this year. This was the first sit, and um, I was able to kill him. Like like you just said, it was um, I think it was about 8.40 in the morning. So that was kind of uh, what transpired. So what, what specifically happened, though? You snuck into that stand in the morning, and t- tell us a little bit more about how that stand was positioned. Why was that okay. stand a good spot? And then what happened with the actual encounter? Yep. Okay. Um, so the stand to kind of paint the picture, um, like I, like I described a minute ago, there's like a, like a big hill. That's like a, like a kind of like an Oak, um, Oak Ridge, I guess is the best way to think of it. A lot of red Oaks up there. There's some cedars, good bedding area. It's kind of thick on one end of it. And it drops down into this little, I don't know, it's probably a couple acre, like kind of marsh with a bunch of brush and bushes, a really thick area there. Anyways, I positioned the stand on um, what would be kind of the northeast corner of this little um, swale hole right at the edge of the the big hill that kind of goes up into that oak flat. Um, Anyways, based on the pictures I got of that trail camera, I figured he was probably bedded up on that ridge somewhere. Um, And the wind was out of the southwest, and I had this stand positioned where I could come in from the north get in the stand, you know, with the wind in my face. And I figured if he was either headed back across this marsh to go up the hill into the bedding, or if he was in the bedding and got up and moved it all during daylight, the first couple hours, you know, that was going to be my best chance to actually shoot the deer. And, um, what happened was about, um, 20 after eight that morning, uh, a little six point or a forky, I couldn't really get it. I didn't get a real good look at him, came down to a scrape, um, freshened up a scrape, stood there for a few minutes, um, you know, worked the licking branch and then he looked back up the hill and, um, I could tell he was kind of getting nervous. And then all of a sudden I hear this really loud, like snort wheeze and like, he just come charging out of there and the little buck took off. Um, and what I didn't know at the time is there was a doe bedded in that marsh about, well, it's a little high piece of high ground off the marsh, like maybe 40 yards away. I didn't see her. And, um, he chased off, you know, the little buck stood there at the scrape and then kind of started working out into the marsh, kind of headed towards me. And about that time, um, I still hadn't seen the doe yet. The little buck was still standing there and he kind of, this buck just kind of, um, stood in the stick of brushy stuff. So I have one of those little can calls, you know, doe bleat. So I, the doe bleat, of course, his ears perked up, looked straight at me and started coming my way. So I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And, um, about that time I saw movement. I look and she stands up. I don't know if she heard the, doe bleat the can that I can call I used or 
if at this time he was getting close enough to her that she just got up. Um, so then he locked on the dough and, um, you know, then of course the calling was out the window. I wasn't going to call a whole lot more to him because I figured it was over and he stood with her or he stayed there near her for probably a good 10 minutes. And luckily enough, she kind of started moving my way, which gave me a little bit of an opportunity for a shot, but it was like out about 40 or 45 yards. That was a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, anyways, I ended up getting, getting him in and he came into about 35 and he was facing me and I came to full draw just cause I was waiting for him to turn and she saw me draw. So I'm looking at her out of my right eye and I'm looking at him out of my left eye. And luckily she looked back at him. So I let the bow down and, um, you know, he kind of, you know, he was still locked on her. She was getting nervous. She didn't spook, but she started to kind of, she bounded two or three times away and he turned to go around this bush and he gave me like a 33 yard shot and I slipped the arrow in there and um, he only went about a hundred yards. So that's basically the, the story in a nutshell. Nice. Nice. All right. All right, Dan, what, what are you wondering about this hunt first? My first question, and it's because we've talked about it. I'm curious when it comes time to draw back and, uh-huh. you know, pull, squeeze the trigger, let the arrow fly. What's running through your head? Uh, me and Mark have both had what I would almost say some kind of a, a tar- target panic episode, if that uh, might be what, yeah. what you want to call it. What goes through you, your head at the last, you know, moment? Are you, do you feel like you're you have a moment of clarity, or is it kind of autopilot? I would say it's yeah. I would say that there's more autopilot than clarity. Um, with me, it's kind of weird. If I get time to look at a deer um like a lot of guys say man i like them coming in really fast so i just take a look oh shooter all right and they go into autopilot and they make a shot i'm kind of the other way around actually because i like i like to see the deer and i know once i know for sure i make the decision you know 100 percent that's an animal i want to harvest um i kind of i think i become more confident with the time especially when i watch his demeanor like this deer was kind of i could tell he was 100 percent focused on that doe so i knew as long as I didn't get her completely alerted. I had time to kill the deer. You know, that's kind of the way I looked at it with this hunt. Um, so there was a little more confidence in that shot than other shots that I've taken. I think, like you said, when they come charging in and you're like, oh, geez, there's a shooter, I think you just go on, a lot of guys anyways, go on autopilot, and sometimes you rush the shot or you don't make as good of a hit as you'd like. Um, not because you're a bad archer, just because, you know, emotions set in and, and you maybe squeeze the trigger a little bit premature or something maybe, you know. Right, right. What, yeah. What do you think, Corey? Um, you know, I listed off a couple of things I thought probably led to me actually pulling off my hunt. What do you think the couple core things were for you that you did right that led to you getting that shot? Okay. Um, I would say probably the number one thing was um, not being – I knew he was there, like I said, several weeks before – and part of the reason I didn't hunt that stand is it's the furthest stand on the property from where I park and enter the property. And this, this property is a little bit difficult for access because there's a lot of good bedding and thick cover between where I park to enter and where this, this area on the property is. And I think I could have probably went in there, obviously when I got those pictures, you know, the 22nd of October, I could have been all excited and said, all right, I'm going there tomorrow morning. He's there. I'm going to try to kill him. Um, but it was still early. I had a few more weeks before I was going to Ohio. I have some other good stands on the property. And I think leaving that stand alone 
and sitting it for the first sit on, like I said, that November 6th with the good moon, um, the right wind, number one. I had wind in my face, you know, blowing out over this open area away from where I thought he was betting. And, um, you know, doing those things right. Had I gone in there a couple weeks earlier, um, he could have been there, sure. Might have, might have worked out just fine, but he, he probably wouldn't have been on a hot dough, which, which is partly distracting him. You know, gave me the opportunity. And um, I could have burned the stand down, you know, hunted it two or three times and then never got the opportunity. So I think probably first sit, right wind, and I waited till later in the year to go to that best stand. So that would be my, that's what I think. So, okay. Do you run a lot of, do you run a lot of trail cameras? Um, I, I have like five or six, like not all on the same farm. I usually put two on each one of the properties I hunt. Um, you know, I'll put one kind of on the outside edge or where there's a, you know, um, close to like maybe a food source. And then I try to put one back in the cover and I only check that if I'm going into, to that stand or I'm in that area where, you know, um, I'm already in there to hunt. So I don't, you know, make extra trip in there. Um, I use them more just inventory. Like a lot of guys, I think put them on certain trails and try to figure out time when they're going to and from, but I, I mostly use them just, is is there a buck there that I want to try to hunt? Is it worth my time? Why? For the most part. Yeah. Yep. Speaking. So speaking of, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit here. And if, if you Ross or Dan have more questions about Corey's specific hunt here, well, I guess before I jump here, do either one of you guys have any other questions for Corey about this hunt? I don't No, We're good. All right. Corey, I want you to tell the story because I've alluded to this in past episodes. We've talked about the infamous bump and dump tactic. (laughs) Many times, but we've never had anyone on the show who's actually pulled it off. Until today, you, Corey Fall, have pulled off a bump and dump, and you killed a booner. Can you tell us how that all happened? Because that was during the rut, too, so that's a that's a rut tactic that you could try, hypothetically. Yep. That was actually another November 6th morning, uh, three years ago, so same morning. Um, yeah, that hunt, I was in Iowa, and... I knew there was a few big deer, of course, on the farm. Every year there's at least a couple of good big deer on the farm. Um, but what had happened is the other guy that hunts that farm had a trail camera in this general area in September. And he got two pictures of a, a you know profile side view of the deer I ended up killing. And I knew it was a big deer. And those, and I, I want to say he moved the camera shortly thereafter. But at least I knew the deer was there. And I had been hunting another area of the farm. And I was seeing some two-year-olds, and I think I might have I might have seen one three-year-old, but you know nothing that was super exciting. Anyways, um, I, I had this air. This one particular finger was real intriguing to me, and I'd never hunted it. Um, and then one morning, of course, the morning of November sixth, it was pouring down rain, and I, you know, had the option of do I go out and and I do not have good rain gear. I'll uh, make that statement right now. Um, <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> do, frog, I, do frog. I go out? And, I do. They're not good. They're not good. Um, So do I go out and sit in the rain in the stand that I'd been hunting or one of the, one of the two stands I'd been hunting um, or do I sleep in and wait till the rain passes and maybe move a stand or do some scouting. So I chose the the ladder there. I waited um, and got in there around eight 30, nine o'clock. I think it was. And my thoughts were, it just rained. Everything was soaking wet, you know, um, the best time to scout a new area. So I thought, well, I'm going to sneak in there. If there's some big rubs and scrapes or some really fresh sign, I'm going to hang and hunt. That was my, that was kind of the goal. So as I'm walking in, 
for, and it actually worked in my favor. I spooked some turkeys and they flew over this ridge and, and I'm, I was walking through a standing cornfield down one of the rows and they happened to fly. Well, I'm watching them fly and I happened to look. And at that time, this, this big buck stood up out of this kind of bedding area on this little point And he saw the turkey spook, looked into the corn to see what had spooked him. But because there was, you know, the corn was six or seven feet high, he never really saw me. Um, and I had the wind in my face, so that worked out nice. And he bounded out of there. So immediately I realized, you know, it's nine o'clock in the morning and he was in there bedded. So I immediately went in, looked around, found a couple of good rubs, nothing super um, impressive for rubs and scrapes. There was a couple of scrapes and a couple of rubs. Um, but there was like five big beds out on this point where he'd been moving around, you know, either based on the wind or for a vantage point. So I thought this is the time. So I ran, hurried up, scooted over, pulled down one of my um, uh, lone wolf tree stands, moved it over um, to this particular area, and checked the wind for the evening hunt. Hung the stand, sat from, I guess it was about 10:30, 11 in the morning, something like that. And he actually came back in to check that bed, that bedding area later that afternoon. So he was gone all day, and about. Uh, I guess it was like 10 minutes before dark that evening. He actually came in through the corn right where I had been, um, you know, downwind of his, of his bedding area. And um, I shot him at like 33 yards. So that's, that's, that's basically the old bump and dump. You, you've yep. told me, you've told <laughs> me about that moment when he stepped out of the corn and it was like oh, pretty yeah. cool. Tell, tell us about what that, what that looked like and what that felt like. Oh, geez. So I'm sitting there and the wind is blowing, you know, I had a Northwest wind. It was probably 10 miles an hour. So, and it was that, you know, how you guys have been there, you know, that last like half hour before dark when the wind's still there, but it's starting to die down about every three to five minutes, it would die down a little bit. And I could hear some rustling in the corn standing corn behind me, but I didn't want to move a ton. And I kept kind of looking over my shoulder and I didn't see anything. And then, you know, five minutes before dark, I hear a corn stalk break and it's 30 yards north of me. And it was him coming out of the corn and into this little clearing. And it was the most unbelievable. It was like shock, fear, excitement, <laughs> and un disbelief all in one. Cause I'm like, oh my, there he is. No way. You know what I mean? Cause I'd gotten a pretty good look at him. And from the side, you know, I mean, he's got like 11 and a half inch G2s and threes. So he's got long times. But when he stepped out, it's that immediate, you know, bushel basket on top of his head. And you're just, I mean, there's no question. I'm like, that's a big, big deer. And, you know, he, but the coolest thing is, is he stepped out and there's, you know, a row, of, like a fence row of trees. And there's this little tiny gap, maybe where like a, a truck could drive through. But he came all the way to the gap, stuck just his head in, not his full body. And he scanned with his eyes. This is the coolest part. He scanned for probably two to three solid minutes, which felt like 10, but it was probably two minutes. He had come downwind over his bedding area. Luckily, you know, I'd, I'd taken pretty good precaution with scent control that day. Um, but he didn't win me. And he came in and he stood there for, like I said, two to three minutes and really just surveyed, scanned the whole little point in Ridge and um, visually to make sure that there wasn't anything threatening there before he went in there. And then he looped way out around and, um, you know, to come back in. And I think what he was really going to do, he wasn't going to embed there right then, um, obviously, because it was late in the evening. I think he was just coming back in kind of to check to say, all right, 
whatever swooped me out of here, is it a threat? And can I come back in here tomorrow morning if the wind's right and bed down here? That's what I honestly think he was doing. And, you know, of course, he was unaware that 20 feet in the air, I was sitting right there. So, um, and as he kind of headed up to that spot where he was bedded, he, he passed by it right about 30 yards. And and I uh, went on autopilot and made the shot, but it, <laughs> it wasn't, um, it, it was it was a decent shot. But, um, yeah, that's that's what happened. So. And then you moved back to Michigan. <laughs> exactly, you're right. No, I was already in Michigan. That was, uh, I went oh, back okay. Out okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so Corey, you've uh, yeah, you've hunted there since that year. Um, yes. So now that that buck's dead, have have you ever scouted that area or hunted that area again, where a new buck moved into that bedding area, or how has that worked? Or have you noticed um, like, other mature bucks using that same bedding area now that he's gone, or? Yeah, that's that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, I yes, I do believe. Um, like I said, I get to hunt about every other year. So on the off years, I, I can't speak for that. But um, the other guy that does hunt there has a trail camera that's that's within 150 yards or so of there. And um, the following year, he was getting pictures of another. I think he was probably a four year old. You know, 140, 100 mid 140 type class 10 pointer that had moved into that area. Um, because the year that I killed that big deer, um, I had sat really close to the, well, I mean, a couple hundred yards, but fairly close where I could see up into that draw a little bit. And I had seen basically just uh, a couple small bucks kind of skirting the outside edge. But I think the year that he was in there, he was the buck. I really don't think there were too many other deer using that area. But of course, now that he's gone, um, I think there's been several other bucks that are, that are kind of using that point. And I think it's more of a, you know, it's, it's, it's an advantageous, um, view, more of a um, vantage point. I mean, obviously they use the wind, but you could see really, if you go get in that buck's bed and kind of kneel down, um, I know like Dan Infault does this type of stuff a lot where you can see from the deer's actual line of sight, you can see quite a ways down into this, this draw and there's a creek bottom. I mean, you probably can see 150 yards, which was huge because anything coming up from the bottom will get, when it gets to the 150 yards, he's, he can see it. And he's out of there, and he can lay with the wind in his back, and he's he's got it. He's kind of golden, so um, it was a great spot. And I'm certain that there's other bucks using it now. But you know, one of my questions about that scenario, you know, when you bump a deer out of his bed, you know, you want to set up near that bed. But I think the biggest, like the crux of that tactic, then is putting your tree stand in the right place so that you don't get winded, mm -hmm. but you're within range of getting a shot. What? How did you pick that tree? Like, what were you th were you thinking through all these things, or what yeah. was going through your mind there? Yeah, well, I mean, there was there was two factors. I looked at the one that was probably the best for the shot was just a bad tree. I, there was a tree that was like 20, 20 yards from the little point where I, he had three or four really good beds out on this point where I could see. And there's a couple of trees. You know how like the buck will lay there, and there's a big rub right where he's bedded you know, like where he maybe stands up and stretches and rubs. There's a couple of those right there. And there was a tree that would have been prime because any, any spot off that point he came in, I would have shot 20 to 20 yards, 25 max. But the tree itself was a, like a burr oak and it had, um, it was on a weird lean and it was just, it was just going to be a pain. And, and I thought, eh, I just don't want to be in that tree. But then I started thinking, okay, um, you know, where am I going to have more than one shot? Because at that point, I could shoot him as soon as he got onto that point, but what if he never made it? You know, that was sort of my thought. I thought, well, if he never gets to all the way out to this point, 
then I never have a shot. You know what I mean? So I started thinking about that, and then I moved it closer to the edge of this um, edge of the cornfield because there's like a, um, I guess the, there's a little cut where it drops down, and there's like a like almost like where a, 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 a farmer's path where like a tractor would drive through right there, and there's about a 15 yard wide strip where any deer that comes from the north or south kind of has to pass by this stand. And then if he wants to get up on that little point, it's, that's where I had like the 30 yard shot. Um, so it actually gave me like three shots from the, from the tree that I picked. Um, neither one of those trees were really good for the wind because of the fact that um, what he did, I mean, he did a 360 degree circle downwind. So I just, I think lucked out because I was high enough up on this hilltop kind of, and um, you know, my scent control, I think I just, lucked out that he didn't win me to be honest with you because i think almost all those big bucks will do a, a a pretty big j hook or 360 loop around their bedding area and i mean you know you're not you're never going to be 100 percent set free um i i think i just um the angle that he came in and in the height that i was in the tree just worked out for me so yeah i gotta say yeah i don't know anybody who hangs their stands as high as you do Corey. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been known to hang them up there a little ways. Uh, and I think, Ro- <laughs> so Ross, that... <laughs> Ross, you can attest to that, can't yeah. you? Yeah, actually, the, the buck I shot my deer out of this year, Corey hung that stand for me. Um, <laughs> it's true. I probably wouldn't have shot that buck if Corey didn't hang that stand because there's no way I would have got this thing in that tree. It's like 35 <laughs> feet up there. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, I, I, your face was priceless this year, Mark, when you came to the one I shot in Michigan. You looked up at that stand and Mark was like, Ooh, it was, you know, it's up there a ways. <laughs> Literally. Got, I remember, I mean, I remember it, when. 30 feet at least. Corey was up there. Man, he was just, I thought he was going to die the whole time. Like, I had my phone in my hand ready to speed dial 911. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Corey, well, Corey's just a wild man when it comes to hanging trees. He's just a tree monkey up there, and he does things that I don't know anybody else who would do them, but, uh, you get away with it. <laughs> so I guess with that, with that said, Ross, um, tell us about tell us about your hunt and the tree that Corey hung your stand in <laughs> years and years ago. So yeah, yeah, he hung that years and years ago. I remember uh, when I at the time I was looking for some new places to hunt, and it's not really like a special. I was looking for some out of the way properties, maybe that people didn't you know have permission or didn't didn't hunt or overlooked. Because um, most of the, like everybody all knows, most of the really good stuff is already spoken for. So you know, I was looking for, looking on maps and looking for places that looked like good, they had good potential. And then just from driving around, I got a good idea where all the deer were at, and where they felt safe. And then you know, you glass in the summers and even in, in the fall, and you can spot some pretty nice bucks. And so after doing that, found some a really good area, and then you look at the neighboring properties and you can see they're kind of like these open pasture kind of, you know, cattle farms, not really a lot of cover, you know, spotty woods, mostly open, but they border the really good stuff. So, so I decided, and I looked at one and I'm like, that one, it looks pretty promising. So I, I stopped by the farmer and got to talking to him and shed hunted it at first. Uh, as I did that, I was, I was kind of scoping it out, found, found a nice shed found some amazing sign and then I knew oh man I gotta ask permission to hunt this place so I luckily asked at the right time because somebody that was hunting it was no longer hunting it and uh, fortunately I got permission which I'm really thankful for 
And then so uh, it's just kind of like a, it's just, it's 80 acres, it's narrow, uh, say like 240 stacked on each other. The first 60 acres is pretty much, it'll be like corner beans. Um, and then in the back 20, there's some cattle pasture. It's all open. It's, there's a nice creek bottom, but it's kind of got those like rocky cliffs and stuff like that. So on those ridges, then out of the neighboring property, there's some nice trails and some of the deer kind of funnel through into some of that pasture down and then even to the crop fields there. So it was a really nice tree <laughs> that I found. And I looked at that thing for so long and I took pictures of it. I think I even sent Corey pictures. I don't even remember. <laughs> um, but I'm like, can you get a tree stand in that tree? And and thankfully he did. <laughs> it's been a good tree to me. Uh, and when he was hanging that thing, I remember him sitting on like, he was sawing a limb that he was sitting on. Like it was just the scariest thing I've ever seen, but it has been an awesome tree. Um, and so that's the spot I, I've hunted quite a bit for the last few years, but I haven't, I don't hunt a lot anymore. Um, this year I've been hunting a different farm. There are a couple of really nice bucks that I was hoping to get, uh, get a crack at. I had one good opportunity at one early on, um, but just wasn't really the greatest. And I kind of let them walk. And I was kicking myself later on after that because during the run, I was seeing tons of two-year-olds and I just was not seeing the mature deer. So it got to be towards, you know, like November 10th, 11th, that kind of 9, 10, 11. Things were still slow over there. Um, and I actually decided to bail. And so since we were getting close to like lockdown, um, I kind of thought to myself, you know, my best, my best opportunity to shoot a, a mature buck is going to be at this place I was talking about. Um, and the reason for that is, is because later in November, closer to lockdown and during lockdown, a lot of the big bucks that are on the neighboring properties, they start pushing those does into those like isolated, secluded little pockets of woods and, and into the pasture ground away from all the other deer. Um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to give it a shot and see what happens. So got in there, um, real early set up and it was an awesome morning. It was one of the most frosty mornings, beautiful morning, not a lot of wind. Um, and you know, you could hear some of the footsteps initially as it started to get light out, some does and fawns started trickling in. And they kind of hung out around my stand. They're kind of heading back into all the cover across the fence under the neighbors. Uh, and so as I was sitting there, I was watching this doe in front of me. She was just standing there for the longest time. She just wouldn't leave. I was actually kind of getting annoyed by her. And she just sat there and sat there and sat there. And then I was just kind of staring at her, and I heard some crunching to my left. And then that's when I saw um, just a glimpse of a rack. And, like, right when I saw that rack, I was like, okay, it's going to happen. And I knew it was a shooter right away. And I could see him sit through some cedars. He went over to a tree, started raking the tree with his, with his antlers and putting on a shell. And, uh, and I got, I got ready and that doe was still in front of me. I couldn't stand up. I was kind of stuck where I was at, but I was in a good position where he was off to my left. I could make good, could still make good shot. And, uh, the doe then that, that buck was with, she kind of, instead of coming down the trail right in front of me at 15 yards is what they were going to do. Actually, probably like 10 yards um, would have been a piece of cake shot. She actually popped out and headed towards the pasture behind me, kind of angling. And then I was like, oh, no, because 
to my left around the tree, it gets kind of tough shooting. There's not as much room. There's not as many opportunities. So I got really nervous. And, uh, so I was kind of slowly starting to squeak around my, my, uh, stand to try to get into position. And that big buck turned and he started to walk and follow her. So I'm watching that doe to kind of get an idea of where that buck is or the path that buck's going to take. So I can be prepared for when I got to stop, when I need to stop him or, or I'm going to get a shot. And of course she takes this angle that doesn't give me any shot opportunity. So I'm like, Oh crap. So at that point I'm watching this buck. He turns and looks at me and he's kind of where he's at on the hill is kind of high level. And he's just like looking right through me. It's one of those like freaky moments where you're, not, where you're, you, you think they can see, but they can't, but they're just like looking right through you. And it was really, it was crazy for a while. That I thought I was just going to get busted, but he didn't bust me. He turned and then he just started to follow her. But fortunately he didn't follow straight behind her. He kind of angled towards me a little bit. And then, so he was on the perfect path to give me a shot in, in an opening. He got behind a little bush I drew. And then as he broke that bush, I'm drawn and I can feel my cam resting right against my bow hook. And I was like, Oh crap. Then there's like a little bit of a panic moment where I'm just trying to kind of shimmy and, and squat a little bit and kind of hunch down and, and get it in, in a position where I, my cams won't hit the cam won't hit the hook. And as I did that, um, I finally found a spot and he was slightly quartering to me and I let the arrow fly. Unfortunately, I hit him a little back, and it kind of angled back a little bit, so it was not an ideal shot. He took off, and I saw him stop up on the hill. I could see his rack, and then he slowly kind of left. Um, and so after some, a lot of thought process and asking all my buddies and Mark and Corey and everybody, I decided I'd leave him overnight. And I shot him in the morning, and I thought, well, shoot, I could go look for him tonight, or I could just look for him the next morning. So I decided to give him 24 hours. Um, and then, uh, my buddy Peter, uh, my dad and my wife, and then my son, we all went tracking the buck the next morning, which was a great, will be a great memory. Um, we got on his trail and ended up finding him dead in, in, uh, in some cover. So it was a pretty awesome hunt, but I think I'm really glad I made the decision to kind of just bail on the one property and go for broke kind of where I knew, knew it gets hot around that time of season. And I shot him on November 12th. I didn't know if I mentioned that or not. That's the day I shot that buck. So you went off historic data, you know, basically information yeah, you've right. collected over the years saying, hey, I know that, I mean, is this information based off trail camera pictures or just from the stand intel? No, just from the stand. You know, that this this spot, you go walk by there, it's, there's, not, there's not too much to, like, figure out. You know, there's not there's not too much thinking that needs to go into it. It's, it's, it's more, it was more off of observation and just kind of knowing the property from over the years and just knowing that it gets good later on. Um, you know, early in the season, you can, you can see a nice buck, but they just don't, they don't come into that farm until those does start coming into heat and those, those, uh, bucks start bringing them over there. Those does kind of start getting away from the crowd or even when those, like when those does get hurt, there's so many deer on the neighboring properties. And I mean, there's so many little bucks and they just harass the crap out of those does and those does even kind of will, will come over into that crappier pasture ground to get away from the crowd because they're just sick of being harassed, I think. And, uh, and then those bucks know that too. And then they'll start like later on, they just start running those little circuits in there. So that's kind of why, why, uh, why it gets a little good 
later on. What about the position of that tree stand? Because I think, you know, like you said, this property is kind of featureless in, to some degree. There's not a whole lot of cover on all the covers on your neighbors. But, but I think because of where that tree specifically is, you're able to catch that movement. Can you elaborate a little bit more on specifically, you know, right where that tree stand is and why that does seem to funnel a lot of the deer traffic past it? Um, so it's just like there's a – if you're going through those front fields that I was talking about, you get to the end of the field of the fence, and then there's pasture. Um, and it kind of makes a big downward sloping hill and then it meets some trees on the, on the ridge there. So it's kind of like down the, um, you know, halfway down that, that hill there. And then there's this ridge that meets the, the property and it's, it's got some cover to it. It's rocky. It's got these rock outcroppings and there's a creek in the bottom, the same thing on the other side. And then it connects to the, to the lease where there's just thick cover. So those ridges, it hits that fence, and then all of a sudden it's just this thick, nasty stuff. It's like the most beautiful white tail ground you could ever imagine. It's just gorgeous. Best bedding areas you can ever imagine. And uh, so those deer, they, they always, they, it's really hard to get them across that fence. And so they uh, they kind of run that fence, and they'll they'll run that ridge, especially like, you know, if you have a, if you have, if you have a north wind, and this ridge runs east-west, if you have a north wind, um, they'll run that ridge and in, in occasionally they'll hop that fence and, and run that ridge on the leeward side. And so they feel safe that way. Um, but then all the stuff, you know, to the, that it connects to, it all kind of funnels down into that area. So down into that creek bottom and that ridge. So it kind of makes like a nice funnel and then it's right tight to a lot of the good cover, um, where they come from. Yeah. I, uh, I got to hunt with you in that stand once or twice a few years back after I, I shot a buck in Iowa, in Iowa down there, and then I filmed you for a few days. And to to that point, those two hunts were the most mature big bucks I'd ever seen in a single day. On I think the first day I saw four, <laughs> and the next day we saw like five or something. Um, yeah. That was crazy. That that was, you know, and it has never been the same ever again. <laughs> it hasn't been Which that good since. <laughs> No, it's every year it gets a little slower, you know, and that's what happens a lot of times with like all of our properties, you know, they don't, they don't last forever and you, sometimes we lose permission or they just don't, they aren't as good as they used to be and this one's kind of that way. It's still good, it still killed a really nice buck, um, but with the hunting pressure on the neighbors, they just pound it and, every, and it just gets really slow. Um, there's more cows now, there's more pressure everywhere, it just kind of slowing down a little bit still can kill a really nice buck but man i wish i could go back a few years that was that was amazing yeah that was pretty crazy well this one was uh nothing to to scoff at it was just what your second biggest buck is that right yeah yeah nice he's a beautiful yeah i'm assuming it was four i don't know um mid 150s 10 so he's a great deer big deer and i actually saw him the week prior to the 12th, I saw him, I was, I got in that tree stand and I sat down no more than 15 minutes later. I saw him cruise at Crick bottom, um, called to him a little bit, but, but, uh, he just went on his merry way and he, uh, I did have a camera in there, Dan, uh, a little bit and I did get him on camera a couple times and he seemed like he was the, he seemed like he was the man right in that little section there and he was checking. There's a couple of doe groups that kind of use that regularly and he seemed like he was really running that quite a bit 
Hmm. Actually, I think I saw him early in October also. It's hard to say, but I'm pretty sure I saw him early October. So he must have been betting on the neighbors there, and then he just kind of was checking those does that ended up getting kind of pushed out in those pastures a little bit. During the rut, how how much do you rely on trail cameras as as far as intel is concerned? I know it sounds like you just kind of made a, a random move this year, but on other years, are you are you using trail camera pictures to, you know, make this tree stand decisions? You know, I during the season not so much. I do uh, I put them on some I usually run cameras on scrapes and get inventory. But a lot of times I'll put my cameras in areas where I think I sh- maybe are considering hunting or want to get info for maybe like the next year. Um, and I let them sit there all year and I just don't I leave them go. And then I pick them up after the season. That's yeah. usually what I do. I don't, I don't. Um, and then, you know, the following year I can see, okay, this is what's going on there and what kind of deer we're in the area. And then I use that for the next year. But usually I'm not really good at letting stuff sit that much. Or if, if I had cameras, I was constantly checking. I think I'd do more harm than good because I'm just not, I'm not that good at, at uh, leaving them alone in, on some of the properties I'm hunting. But but usually it's just for inventory, Dan. I don't I I I try a little bit here and there, but usually it's just to kind of see what's around and I run them on those scrapes. Right now, now speaking of that, Ross, I know. Or I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've kind of seen just based on our conversations in the past that on another one of your properties there seems to be a, a pretty consistent uptick in activity in like late November. Um, are you, is that something that you that you or Kendall, your wife, are planning on trying to key in on on that property as we get later into this month? Is that a, am I right on that? And then B, yeah. is that something you're going to do? Yeah, uh, Kendall's going to. I mean, as long as you know we can make it happen, she's going to try and uh, capitalize on that. Like you know, like that Thanksgiving time, and even towards like that really early December time is just it can be awesome. And the, um, a lot of times on one of the farms that I have permission on, there's the biggest bucks show up right around Thanksgiving and they stick around um, for a week or two there. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see. And uh, I was really trying to hold out for something big this year. And if I wasn't going to shoot something early, I was going to really hammer it around that time frame. Um, but a lot of the neighboring properties and, and kind of like I said, right before shotgun season, they just kind of pile in there and they check those last doors and those big, those big bucks just start, they just start moving. Um, and that, you know, living in Wisconsin stuff, I never experienced any of that because the, in like Michigan, the gun season's so early. Um, mm-hmm. But in Iowa, you get to see some of that because the gun season's in December. Uh, whereas I never experienced any of that before. I would have never thought you could have such amazing hunting, you know, towards the end of November, beginning of December like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things that me and Corey have always talked about trying to key in and on down in Ohio, you know, in the past when we haven't filled our tags early, we've always talked about trying to get back there around Thanksgiving because they have that a similar situation. Their gun season doesn't open till later. Um, and you get that activity that you just wouldn't have here in Michigan. Um, and three years ago I did go down there at that time frame, and I saw two of the, two of the bucks I was after in the middle of the day. So that always was something that's kind of stuck with me. And I always thought to myself, if I if I didn't have that tag filled, that would be the time to go give it another crack. And uh, shoot, Don yeah, Higgins. We had, yeah, we had Don Higgins on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's a huge proponent of that late late November time period. So if you're still out there trying to fill you know your what? tag, 
it's there's still opportunity. Oh yeah, I, I know. I, I was actually really looking forward to that time. I wasn't really, I wasn't looking forward to holding on to my tag that long, but <laughs> but I was actually, I would have been pretty optimistic. I could at least have maybe a good encounter or two of uh, some really mature deer. Which which even that property you were hunting in Iowa um, last year, um, that great big buck you you had an encounter or two with. Like I ended up getting him on camera. Uh, what was that? Like December first or something? Daylight. Yeah, and you egged, egged me out on it. Yes, uh, it's, it's a it's a great time. Yeah, yeah. I, I unfortunately okay. Quick great question. Quick question, Ross. If you could only you, I gave you two choices to hunt: first week in November or last week in November. What would, would you pick? Oof. Well, you know what? On the property that I properties I can hunt, I would say last week in November. I don't know okay. if I say that for every property, but you know where I can hunt, I would say last week in November. If I wanted to shoot a mature deer, that's when I would hunt. Corey, same question. Oh, I guess I'm going to have to go the opposite um, and probably say the first week. Not because I don't think grouse is 100% correct. I just think that um, for me, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, if I want to kill a true, truly mature deer, I'm going to be hunting out of state. And, you know, for seeing them, for me anyways, the best deer movement usually is that, you know, November 3rd to the 8th has always been historically the best for me. Um, but again, it's a different situation. Like if, you know, if, if you live there and you have a couple farms that, that have, you know, you've had that experience with, I think that late, late, late November's, you know, awesome. But for me, I'm going first week. Mark. That's what I'm going to say. Yep. I think I would probably still say first week, not Again, like Corey said, not because I don't believe that the last week can be really good, but simply because the majority of my own personal experience of good activity has always been earlier in November. And just because I would be looking at what other people have told me for the late November being really great versus what I've seen personally being early November being really great, I would probably just feel a little tiny bit more confident going with the first week. What about you, Dan? I would... uh... I don't know. I, 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 to be honest with you, I really have never put a lot of time in the tree stand late uh, or the last week of November because I used all my vacation before that, but I would probably lean towards the last week of November. Just based on, cause so you're basing that just on other people's testimony, testimonials. Basically, no, right? I'm basing it off what my trail cameras have told me throughout the years okay. so it, to me it seems like that the first through the fifth is or even into the seventh is 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 good but if i want like a giant i'll be waiting longer yeah i was just gonna say i i think there's something about the the everybody always says that you know hey you got to get you got to get on these deer before these does go into heat. I think everybody, we may be overstepping or, or forgetting about the opposite where bucks are cruising after all the does have been bred and still looking for um, that last potential hot doe. I think for me, I think I would, that that's what I would base it off of. Yeah. And, and what my trail cameras have said. Yeah, my, my comment well, on that too is, what do I, okay, go ahead, Russ. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think there's probably like so many different 
right answers just depending on where you're at. Um, just from my experience, when I'm, where I'm hunting, what I'm hunting now, I know like the the best time over the years I've learned to kill a mature buck where I'm at would be that last week of October. And then it gets slow right around Halloween for a little bit of November. There's always the first couple of the early does. Seems like the big bucks are on them. Gets slowed down, picks up a little bit, kind of when you guys were talking. And then it gets really slow during lockdown again. And then that Thanksgiving weekend gets crazy again. Or around, you know, that later after lockdown, Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. I just That's just my experience, and that's just where I'm at. But I know there's different you know, different scenarios for different places, but that's kind of what I've noticed. Did you have something to say, Corey? Yeah, I was just going to say what I've always heard from, you know, a lot of guys that have, you know, been successful on big deer is, you know, those mature bucks, you know, I'm going to say, you know, you're four and a half year olds and older. I mean, three and a half is a mature deer, but a truly mature four-year-old and older. I think a lot of those bucks, I've always heard guys say, you know, they want to breed the first doe that comes in, you know, which is awesome. Like Ross said, you know, the 28th, 9th, 30th, 31st of October, that, that last day or two of October. And and then they want to, they, they want to get that first doe because they've been through the rut several years in a row. They know what's going on. And then they also want to breed the last does that come in because they want to kind of hold on to the, the whole experience. The longest is my, my kind of way of looking at it is what I think. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but that's kind of what I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think kind of the middle part of the rut, you know, you've got a majority of the does coming in, but you also have all the two-year-olds, year-and-a-half-olds running everywhere. So your best percentage of seeing the most bucks is probably that, you know, third through the tenth. But I think like, like you know, um, you guys both just alluded to, if you want to kill a true giant, you know, five-and-a-half, six-and-a-half-year-old buck that's a homebody, you're probably better off killing him, like Ross said, that last week in October or that last week in November. Truthfully, you're, you're probably right. One piece of devil's advocate, uh, devil's advocacy here okay. though, to think about, <laughs> okay. and, I, and, I, and I agree. I agree with everything you guys are saying. One potential downside of that or one reason why in some areas that time frame could be more difficult, though, is the hunting pressure factor. You yeah, wait three yeah. and a half more weeks, even if it, even if there isn't a gun season, even if it's just bow hunters. You know, if you've got three more yeah. weeks of guys hunting hard, and let's be honest, that first two weeks in November is when the majority of guys are really putting in their serious tree stand hours. You know, guys are traveling out of state for their rutcations, or they're taking their vacation time and hunting all day. So that's probably, other than gun season, that is the highest concentration of hunting pressure. So if you wait till after all of that, you're going to have your biggest impacts on those deer too. So I wonder if in the areas of most, in the areas of low hunting pressure, you do see that really great late movement, but maybe in the areas with high hunting pressure, it's less so simply because of that hunting impact, pressure impact. Yeah, most definitely. I know, I know if I wasn't in Iowa and I didn't have the opportunities I have, I wouldn't be saying that. You know, if I was in Michigan and say like hunting public land, I would, I would never say that. I would, I would probably say I'd spend most of my time in October trying to kill a mature buck in a bedding area or something like that instead. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely area specific, you know. Because yeah. um, in Iowa, yeah, I wouldn't probably say that. Michigan, heck no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> or you know, if you have a big, big managed property, of course, it's going to be a totally different scenario. But, but really, I mean, if you do your homework and you find find bedding areas and, and you do really good scouting, then, you know, October is just as good of a time as any to, to kill a mature buck. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. 
So, all right, so we, we've got to wrap things up here. But I want to ask one final question for all of us here. So all four of us have killed a buck during the rut this year, so we were successful. But at the same time, I'm sure each one of us either made a mistake or and learned from it or just learned some type of lesson for some other reason. So I kind of want to know for each one of us, what was your biggest lesson learned from this year's rut? Um, and Dan, since you're a pro with this kind of stuff, I want to start with you. <laughs> what, because I make the most mistakes? No, I mean, you're, you're a pro at these tough questions that I send out at you. So what is your number one lesson learned from the 2016 rut? You know, I, this is going to sound kind of cocky, right? But I don't feel I had the opportunity to make a lot of mistakes this year. I got I'm I had one of those seasons where I I went in, I I did what I tried to do and I was successful. You know, it happened right away and you know like you know, we talked about this the last podcast about being lucky, but at the same time everything that I I did was kind of calculated. It just so happened that the a buck was there when I started my vacation and I, I tagged out early, but if I'm going to, you know, if I'm really going to try to force myself into a learning situation here, I would say that it would be every hunt that I did this year I took place in was a, a first time in scenario where it was, a you know, like I, I didn't, the only stand I hunted two times this entire year was the, the stand that I shot my buck out of everything else was in and out. If I didn't see anything, I wasn't going back to it, you know, or I was setting up for, for a doe and I tore it straight down and, and left and didn't go back. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't put unnecessary pressure on certain stand locations. Interesting. All right. What about you, Corey? Um, for me, I'm going to say patience is probably what I learned. Uh, I mean, I've always, I mean, I shouldn't say I learned patience, but I mean, being patient, um, on the property was probably one of the number one reasons that I was able to be successful, um, in the past, um, maybe not so much in Iowa, but in, in Michigan, I, I typically, you know, I go out of state every year, the first week or two in November. So I always, you know, give myself I only give myself, you know, I only have about three or four weeks to get it done here. So I've found in the past that, you know, if I get a trail camera picture on October 10th or 12th, and I think to myself, wow, I only have 15, 18 days or something before I leave, um, I got to get in there and shoot that deer. I got to try right away. And maybe I don't wait for the right wind, or maybe I go on a, um, a low percentage day, you know, it's too warm or, or you know, something else. And um, I didn't do that this year. Um and I kind of worked more of that outside-in approach. Um, I hunted other stands, and I waited to that, like I said, that best stand that's kind of back in their ways to the right day. Um, and I, it was my first sit, first time in. And historically for me, um, I don't know what you guys think, but my first two sits on um, any of my stands are obviously the best. And I think almost all, but maybe one, of the good bucks I've ever killed have been in the first two sits. So... Yeah, I think patience, just not getting overly aggressive too soon, you know, in October um, is what really helped me. What about you, Russ? Uh, I think it's getting tougher, less time, you know, than it used to have. So I think uh, 
I just have to work on being a little bit more prepared or not shed hunting as much, probably scouting a little bit more, that kind of thing. So I think I spend my time doing stuff that's maybe not as productive. So this year I got I got into season. You know, I was prepared, but then I wasn't, you know, things change every year, and I wasn't prepared for them or ready for them, didn't have as much time. So I feel like I kind of got kind of got a little behind, um, which hurt me a little bit. So I think just using my time a little bit more wisely, like in spring, to I got a question for next year. Did you ha- yeah. have a kid this year? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we. Oh, yep. oh, I did. that's me that's as well. Both of us did. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw yeah. that. I saw Corey. I knew you had one, but I didn't know that you had one, Ross. So yeah, so I, obviously that changes things. Yeah. So first off, congratulations to both of you. And second off, uh, well, uh, good luck hunting as hard as you have in the past. Yeah, exactly. That's a little bit, little bit, uh, just being a little bit smarter, not, not harder kind of thing, you know? Right. That's kind of what I got to focus on. So, so, so my biggest lesson learned, my biggest lesson learned this rut based on what you guys have just been telling me is to not have a kid. And that is, <laughs> you know, if my if my wife wasn't so close to me, I'd probably say yes. But instead, I have to say stuff like, you know what, Mark, just keep an open mind and blah 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 blah. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm looking forward to having one of those little rascals. Um, in all and seriousness, you're... my biggest lesson learned probably would be taking what you and Corey said, um, but the opposite. So I think my mistake I made this, this year, and I don't know, the mistake I made is that I hunted too hard for Holyfield too much. So what happened was that by the time the rut rolled around, I wasn't getting as much doe activity up in the couple spots I can hunt him. Instead, most of the does were staying back in the cover or on this wide open field and so that's where Holyfield was. I think if I had not hunted so hard in October for him there, I think I would have had a better chance of catching him in late October or early November in there if that was my first or second time in there instead of my fifth or sixth time in there. Um, so the issue, though, is that I chose to do that to push it early because I was getting daylight sightings of him. So... I don't know. It's like this weird catch-22. Usually when you have daylight activity, you want to move in on it. But that daylight activity did not translate into a close enough daylight encounter. So this is the, this is the thing I've been battling with is did it make was – was it a mistake going in there? And if not – or I don't know. It obviously was a mistake because I didn't kill him. So now I just need to try to figure out how to uh, make the best of this, this second half of the season. But that's probably my – yet to be completely figured out lesson. All right. I, I know that was supposed to be the last question, but I have another last question if that's okay, Mark. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. So uh Ross and Corey, have you guys ever shed hunted together? Oh yeah. 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 yeah okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm gonna remove myself from from this and i'm gonna i'm gonna ask Corey. i'm gonna ask you first who is a better shed hunter mark or ross <laughs> this, is, this is just a straight up question who's a better shed hunter yeah um, who's, who's a better shed hunter 
<laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna. Ha- I'm gonna have to go with Ross. And I don't okay. think it's because Mark. I don't think it's because Mark couldn't be equally as good. It's just because Ross has had significantly more experience and more time doing it, and um, especially in Iowa. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to. Uh, Mark, you're you're good. I'm not saying you're bad, but <laughs> Ross Ross is actually Ross is actually better than I am. And he walks probably more. Mark, what's that? Now, all I heard was all I heard was Ross is is better than Mark. Now 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 Ross, you've hunted with, yeah. you've hunted with with both Mark and Corey. Who's a better shed hunter, Mark or Corey? Oh, Corey. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, now, Mark, who's a better shed hunter, Ross or Corey? All right, this is this is the ultimate question here. Now, I, I'm gonna okay, say, no, never mind. go for it. I'm gonna say Ross because he plays by the rules. Corey's the shed poacher. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, he's a shed poacher. He's just qualified. They don't teach you how to walk straight lines in Michigan, do they? <laughs> oh, oh man. Yeah, when you when you walk with those guys. I know you've I know you've shed hunted with Mark, right? You've shed yeah. hunted wait with both of them. Yep. Are they like are they like a hundred yards ahead of you on their line? Like <laughs> blowing your well, doors off, walking like practically running? Well that's what I they think, did to me. I think this is I don't know I don't wanna you know, say it, but this is all speculation. We were one second. <coughs> <laughs> we we were walking down a ridge, and I swear to God, I thought I saw Corey go, hey, look, is that a shed? And Mark turned his head, and then Corey jumped in front of Mark's line and then walked, <laughs> walked like 40 yards and saw it. You know, he, he saw a shed like 20 yards before Mark saw it and then just jumped in front of <laughs> You know, you, you, you got to be careful when you shed hunt with Corey because he <laughs> – <laughs> I, in all honesty, I don't know. Uh, I kid, I kid about Corey being a shed poacher. He's fine, but he does have a knack for just finding them somehow. Like, not only did he get that one right in front of me, but the the absolute worst. And maybe I've told this story before, but the absolute worst ever. Me and Corey were walking this new property that we've always wanted to walk. Like we always talk about, we gotta walk this spot, we gotta walk this spot, but we never did. And it's just all this big CRP field that's in this area where there's lots of big deer. This is in Iowa, and we're right around this area where Ross hunts and everything. And so me and Corey go walking through, then we walk it, walk it, and we didn't see anything. So we were coming back out to the truck, and just before we get to the truck, and me and Corey, like at this point, we're done shed hunting. We're just walking back because we'd already walked all the good stuff. Me and Corey are, like, right next to each other. Like our shoulders are almost touching. We're just BSing, talking as we walk back. And as we're walking, I hear a clunk next to me, and Corey had kicked something. And he's like, huh? And he bends down, and he picks up, like, a 65-inch shed. He's like, oh, look what I stepped on. <laughs> and I was so that's, pissed. That's Corey, though. He, he attracts that stuff. He does. I, I have like, a feeling, uh, we're, like, right now, Corey is boiling mad, and he wants to beat our ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh no i'm doing all right over here i'm just having fun this is fun. as he's looking at his booners on his on his wall yeah. and he's looking at all the sheds he's found Corey, Corey definitely oh, has geez. Corey's a very good shed hunter and he uh he we all occasionally have to get lucky but uh but, yeah, very true all right <laughs> i'm glad we gotta we have that in there dan we gotta have a part two part two of this conversation i of like all that. four of us That'd be fun. 
Yeah, this was fun. This was fun. This was good. What we really need to do, we've been trying to get you to come down and meet us, Dan, during our shed hunting trip uh, down that area this coming spring or some point we'll have to get together. Or next year, me and Corey will probably be hunting Iowa at the same time you guys will be, so maybe get together during deer camp too. Amen. That would be fun. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a you're uh, you have a trailer now too, so True. We're gonna be camping. Right. We gotta we gotta convince Let's Corey that it's okay to to sit by the campfire though. <laughs> I'm the one who doesn't want to sit by the campfire, let's be honest. But gets up moves when the when the wind changes, right? Yeah, I don't wanna get smoked. Yeah, I don't wanna get all smoky. I know yeah, I don't last, either. Last year when I'm we're hunting. Last year we were hunting, last year we were hunting and, and we were sitting around the fire and here Mark is like talking. Mark's standing like seventy yards away probably. Oh please. And there, and <laughs> Hollering. Upwind of the smoke. He's so terrified of that smoke. He's like seventy yards away. <laughs> <laughs> Always gotta be thinking about scent control protocol, guys. Always. <laughs> As the combine is emitting like toxic fumes out of its Rear end. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think we do need to wrap this one up, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you, Corey, and thank you, Ross. Thank you. It was fun. All right. And with that, we will wrap this episode up. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as we did. Now, before we go, though, we need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So Big thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us today. I hope your hunting season has been going well so far, but if not, keep at it, keep grinding, good luck, and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.